From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With the federal government poised to set new regulations on mercury emissions, there's new evidence that mercury pollution is not only making people sick and lowering IQs, it's hurting them in their pocketbooks as well. This cognitive impact resulting from mercury pollution has a significant impact on the economic productivity of our nation, which is at least 2.2 and possibly as high as $43.8 billion each year. Also, a sexual offender seeks redemption in prison through the study of nature. The damage that it did to my victim, to my family, to my children, it's baggage I'll carry the rest of my life that I'll never escape. And, you know, truthfully, I'll probably define myself as a prisoner for the rest of my life. Those stories in a dance for a warming planet this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Mad as a hatter. Years ago, mercury was used to stiffen fur in hat making, but it also got into the nervous systems of hatters and made many of them act crazy. Now, in the face of evidence that even small amounts of the metal are harmful, the Bush administration is getting close to regulating mercury emissions from power plants. Trace amounts in coal go from smokestacks into the air, into water, and into the human food chain, often through fish. Developing babies are especially vulnerable. A rule proposed by the Environmental Protection Agency would gradually reduce mercury pollution over the coming 10 to 15 years. A bill pending in Congress called Clear Skies would largely do the same. But critics say both measures come up short when it comes to adequately protecting the health of children. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. Researchers at the Mount Sinai Center for Children's Health and the Environment in New York City wanted to know more about what life will be like for children born to mothers who've accumulated mercury in their bodies. Their study, published in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, found mercury impairs cognitive ability in 300 to 600,000 American children born each year. Study co-author and pediatrician Leonardo Trasandi says high mercury means lower IQ. These are children for whom their native intelligence is knocked down a bit and they're less sharp in school. The really smart are slightly duller and don't perform well in school. Chisandi's work is the first peer-reviewed medical study to measure the extent of IQ loss due to mercury. His study also looked beyond learning to earning, putting a price tag on the lost job opportunities that result from that lowered IQ. This cognitive impact resulting from mercury pollution has a significant impact on the economic productivity of our nation, which is at least 2.2 and possibly as high as $43.8 billion each year. The broad range comes from the many variables Trisandi had to consider. His best guess is a mercury-induced loss of $8.7 billion to the U.S. economy each year. Scientists employed by the electric industry disagree. Michael Miller is environment director for the Electric Power Research Institute. Well, uh, we've, got some, we've got some major reservations about that study. Miller questions the link between mercury exposure and IQ loss and says the study overstates the role of power plant emissions of mercury. He says most mercury in the U.S. comes from natural sources like forest fires or blows in from industry elsewhere around the world. 
Chisandi stands by the Mount Sinai study. And it's caught the attention of a committee advising the Environmental Protection Agency on children's health issues. Committee member John Balbus is health director for the advocacy group Environmental Defense. Balbus says the Mount Sinai study addresses the very questions the committee had been asking EPA. It raises the question why it took an academic outside the agency to do it when we've been asking the agency to do this kind of thing for you know over a year. Balbus says the advisory committee has long questioned the EPA's mercury proposal. Instead of forcing power plants to install the best technology to control mercury, the EPA proposal calls for a cap-and-trade approach. It would reduce overall mercury emissions by about 30 percent by the year 2012, then 70 percent six years later. Power companies could buy and sell mercury emissions credits to meet those targets. Balbus says the advisory committee sent four letters to EPA, questioning whether the proposed rule would make mercury cuts fast enough or deep enough. And so we asked to see proof that the rule that was being proposed was taking all these factors into account and was coming up with a solution that was the best for the children's health. That's the kind of analysis we were looking for, and unfortunately I don't think that's the kind of analysis that we ever got. Some career scientists within EPA raised similar questions about the mercury rule, how it was put together, and what it would achieve. Milt Clark is an EPA health and science advisor. He says he can't speak for the agency, but as a scientist, Clark says he does not see how the EPA's proposal will get mercury out of rivers, lakes, fish, and people. And the 30 percent has to really be compared with the fact that there would be a potential of several, well, I want to be very clear here, over a million children that would be born above acceptable levels. A report last month by the EPA's own inspector general echoed those complaints. The report said the agency ignored scientific evidence to set modest mercury limits that would agree with the Bush administration's cap-and-trade approach in its Clear Skies legislation. Instead of conducting science to determine a mercury limit, the IG report says, the agency worked backwards to justify a predetermined goal. EPA officials declined to grant an interview for this story. In a written response to the Inspector General report, an official called it flawed and inaccurate and said the Inspector General had, quote, characterized the process as incomplete before the process has even finished, end quote. Before the agency completes the mercury rule, Mount Sinai's Dr. Chersandi says he hopes EPA will think about the public health costs his study points out. It's also unconscionable not to go after the primary problem, which is mercury pollution, Uh, from man-made sources such as power plants. EPA faces a March 15th deadline to make its mercury rule final. A committee vote on the Clear Skies legislation is set for March 9th. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Thirty years ago, it seemed that the magnificent bighorn sheep of the western mountains were headed for extinction. The bighorn is the most prized trophy of the four North American wild sheep species that hunters consider a grand slam. So the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep came up with a program to save the endangered animals by killing just a few of them. Saving an endangered species by hunting them sounds like an oxymoron, but the organization had the notion that by getting a lot of money for a few hunting permits, they could raise money for sheep conservation and community development. 
The concept seemed unusual to writer Daniel Duane, so he joined a foundation hunt in the Viscano Biosphere in the south of Baja, California recently, and wrote about that experience in the March issue of Mother Jones magazine. Dan Duane, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Now, as I understand it, before you started doing the research for this story, uh, you'd never been out hunting. Uh, So what were your views on hunting up until then? Well, I didn't have very well-formed views. You know, I grew up as an urban liberal environmentalist with most of most of my exposure to the or all of my exposure to the outdoors being in backpacking in California, Sierra Nevada and that sort of thing. And the picture of the hunter in my mind wasn't an especially favorable one. And and I think if I had any view of them at all, uh it came from fairly cliched notions picked up through TV and here and there and um I don't know, visions of beer-swilling guys driving around in pickups trying to blow away Bambi on the weekends and somehow feeling bigger about themselves when they manage to do it. So that's a pretty negative view, in other words. That's a pretty negative view, yeah. So for this story, you end up going out on a trip with a man named Brian Dretman. He's a wealthy man who's a seasoned hunter from Michigan. And as I understand it, he's paid $59,000 and an auction for a permit for basically for the right to hunt bighorn sheep, which are, are considered endangered. How how does this work? So the way this works is that a wildlife conservation group formed by hunters called the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep got this idea that the best way to raise money for the conservation of wild sheep was to talk the states that uh, have sheep populations into granting the foundation a small number of hunting permits. The foundation then auctions off those permits to the highest bidder and gives 90% of the money right back to the state with all of it earmarked for sheep conservation. Uh, Let me see if I figure this out. They kill endangered sheep to save them? Isn't that peculiar? Indeed. And, and, but that's exactly what they do. And they've been very successful at it. The killing of, of the uh, endangered bighorn sheep over the last 15 years through these FNAWS permit programs has raised many, many millions of dollars for the conservation of those sheep and has been directly responsible for, I believe it's a fourfold increase in the number of wild sheep in North America. So what are the incentives here? How does it work to kill an endangered sheep to save the population? Uh, the way it works in Baja is that there is a very small um, and until recently dwindling population of bighorn sheep in a desert mountain range. That mountain range lies within the collective property holding of a group of local rural people. In other words, the Mexican government has granted collective ownership of a large piece of desert to 142 Mexican families. The Foundation for North American Wild Sheep comes down to them and says, hey, let's get the Mexican government to grant us a permit to hunt one or two of those bighorn that are on your land. We'll take that permit up to the United States. We'll auction it to the highest bidder, and we'll give all of that money to right to this ejido, to this group of families that owns this property collectively. And with that money, we will create a conservation program to preserve the bighorn sheep, and that conservation program will employ you guys. So a bunch of guys get jobs, and an economic incentive is created for all of these rural people to preserve both the bighorn sheep and the habitat on which they live. So so tell me about the hunt itself. What happened? You get up in the morning and... Well, uh, we get up before dawn. We um, load up our pack, you know, have breakfast around a fire, load up our packs and start up the mountain. 
the uh, the guides took us up sort of winding, snaking, very steep footpaths. At time we were, times we were scrambling on uh, hands and feet. We gained a couple of thousand feet elevation to get to um, a ridge near the summit of the mountain that would allow us to look down into the canyon where the where the sheep were, um, moving as quietly as possible and whispering and being careful not to drop anything or brush any sticks. We crept up to the edge there and looked over uh, and down at the sheep. It it took a while for Ramon, the chief guide, to figure out exactly which ram he wanted Brian to shoot. What was he looking for? He was looking for the oldest ram and the ram with the largest rack of horns. And why is that good? That's that's good for hunters because hunters like big big racks of horns. And it's good for conservation because the oldest ram in the group has presumably had plenty of opportunity to spread his genetic diversity through the herd. So uh, Ramon eventually pointed to a particular ram down near a yucca tree. There was a lot of anxious whispering back and forth between Brian and Ramon to make sure that Brian knew exactly which ram Ramon had in mind. Once Brian uh, was confident, he chambered a bullet in his rifle and settled his crosshairs on that ram and waited for the all-clear uh, for a moment, there was a ewe, a female bighorn, standing directly behind the ram, so there was some concern that the bullet could go through the ram and kill the ewe as well. What would happen if he killed the wrong ram or the ewe? It would have put a real smear on the hunt. It would have been very upsetting for everybody involved. Uh, the ejidatarios are very committed to preserving their sheep. They place an enormous value on preserving their herd, and a killed female is a small catastrophe for them. What happens next is that finally that you moves. Ramon, the guide, hisses, uh, listo, all clear. And there's a dead silence in the group for a beat. And then this tremendous concussion as Brian pulls the trigger and the rifle bucks. Uh, the sheep had all sort of bolted. They had no idea what had happened, but of course they'd heard this terrifying noise. And then came this groan, sort of, as Ramon was communicating that Brian had missed. Part of the problem had been that the rangefinder wasn't working when Brian took that shot, and he wasn't sure how far away the sheep was. After that first shot missed, suddenly the rangefinder started working again, and Brian got a clear view of his sheep. He got a clear read that it was 150 yards away. Uh, As he took the second shot, he did what I'm told a good hunter tries his best to do, which is to let out a long, steady exhale as he squeezes the trigger. This time, a cry went up among the guides that he had hit the target. And how did you feel? I was surprised to feel exhilarated by it. I had wondered what I would feel in that moment. I I had really wondered in advance what I would feel watching a man shoot a bighorn ram. Growing up in California and spending time in the mountains of California, the bighorn had always loomed for me as the real sort of mystical inhabitants of the airy keeps of the high mountains. And I wondered if I was going to feel revolted or saddened or something like that. And I didn't at all. I felt exhilarated by it. I felt excited by the adventure of it. I felt privileged to be along with these local men and watching them ply their woodcraft as, you know, their their tracking and all of that. Another thought I had was, you know, please let me go this way. 
you know, this guy was in, he, he was near the end of his expected lifespan anyway. He was in great health. He was eating from a, you know, his favorite kind of bush. He was surrounded by his, all his descendants and family. And uh, then the lights went out. So how do you think your views on hunting changed after this hunt? Ray Lee, the CEO and president of the Foundation of North American Wild Sheep, said to me that in defending hunting, he said to me, that, look, this is the way people did it for tens of thousands of years. This is how people got food. And now we all get our food wrapped in cellophane at the supermarket. And if you ask a hunter what he's doing out there, he'll tell you, look, 362 days a year, I get my food wrapped in cellophane. And three days, on these three days a year when I go hunting, what I'm doing is I'm putting myself back in, putting myself back into the natural world. And as someone whose idea of being put back into the natural world has typically meant finding a gorgeous high mountain lake and watching the sunset, it was hard for me to accept uh, the Bloodsport version of being put back into the natural world until I was on the mountain with that sheep, watching it being butchered and then eating it. I felt privileged to be there, and I did feel um, that at least in the one setting in which I participated, hunting really could be an extraordinary way to participate in you know in the rhythms of life how do you feel about going hunting again yourself well i i'm i'm curious about it you know i was so enthusiastic about this that brian uh has invited me to go turkey hunting with him in michigan this spring and uh i'm really looking forward to it i'm i'm curious about it you know i i mean again i'm not sure what it's going to feel like because i'll be taking yet another step to actually pull the trigger but I, I, I plan to have a big dinner party afterwards and, you know, have roast wild turkey for a bunch of friends and learn some good recipes for stuffing, I guess. Daniel Duane is the author of the article Sacrificial Ram in the March-April issue of Mother Jones magazine. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thanks for having me. And if you have an opinion about hunting in the name of conservation, we'd like to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1-800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to us at comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. When most of us think about how people might be disrupting the global climate, we tend to blame greenhouse gas emissions from cars, power plants, and factories, all products of an industrial society not even 300 years old. But William Ruddeman, a marine geologist and professor emeritus of environmental sciences at the University of Virginia, has another idea. He thinks our ancestors may have had a hand in climate change as far back as 8,000 years ago. In a cover story for the March issue of the magazine Scientific American, Professor Ruddeman says early human activity caused atmospheric levels of methane and carbon dioxide to jump at a time when they should have been falling. Up until then, the Earth had regularly alternated between ice ages and warming periods due to the wobbles in our orbit around the sun. And right now, the Earth should be on the verge of another ice age. But since the climate has by and large stayed warm for the past 8,000 years, Professor Ruddeman wanted to know why. He joins me from member station WMRA in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Hello, Professor. Hello. 
So what exactly were early humans doing 8,000 years ago that could have brought on global climate change? Well, basically, they were farming. Uh, They were clearing forests across the southern tier of uh, Eurasia uh, in order to open up land so that the sun could get to the plants. Agriculture had been discovered in a couple of locations uh, in the Middle East and in China 11,000 years ago, but it began to spread into forested areas around 8,000 years ago. So that's one part of it. The other part is that by 5,000 years ago, people uh, began to flood wetlands in Southeast Asia to irrigate the uh, land to grow rice. So uh, clearing the forest generates carbon dioxide. Irrigating generates methane. So your hypothesis is that we would be in an ice age if it weren't for human activity. Do I have that right? Uh, That's basically right, although it's easy to overstate it. Uh, What I said was that ice sheets of some size would now be growing in the northern hemisphere, probably in far northeastern Canada. Now, this should not be understood to mean that there were there would have been massive ice sheets down to uh, Toronto and Chicago and New York the way there were 20,000 years ago. These would be small but growing uh, ice sheets. What did you find in your research that led to your theory of, of ancient global warming? Well, basically, a part of my hypothesis is that that if greenhouse gases had done what they normally do, what they what they naturally did in the past for the last three or four hundred thousand years, they would have decreased during the last several thousand years. But instead, they uh, they started that kind of decrease, but then they turned around and went the other way. They increased. They went the wrong way. Humans were putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That warmed up the atmosphere, and in effect, that warming stopped a natural cooling. It it kept the Earth from cooling off. Now, some of your colleagues are skeptical of your hypothesis and the conclusions that you have from the data. Um, We talked to a couple. Professor William uh, Peltier of the University of, of Toronto, for example, questions if there really could be could have been enough deforestation and uh, crop irrigation with the resulting releases of, of carbon dioxide and methane to, to cause the increases that you cite here. How do you respond to this criticism? Uh, it is, at first blush, a valid criticism. Uh, if you go back, say, to just before the beginning of the industrial era, when I say these greenhouse gas anomalies had reached the these very large sizes that I mentioned earlier, uh, there were about... 500 million people, 600 million people around, and that's only a tenth of the number of people that are alive today. So if you look at how much uh, methane or CO2 farming and deforestation generate today from 6 billion people, and then you think, well, there were only 500 million people alive then, you have to wonder if, indeed, if there is enough farming activity to do that. But I think there's an underlying fallacy to that point of view, and it's it's basically this. We don't live, the average person today does not live the way the average person lived in 1700 or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Back then, almost everyone was a farmer, and so everyone w- that was farming needed cleared land and there, therefore deforestation to uh, to do the farming. Today, most of us are not farmers, and and so the relationship is not a one-for-one relationship between uh, population and greenhouse gas uh, emissions. 
Um, what are the implications for the future here? If, if climate change has been an ongoing phenomenon for the last 8,000 years uh, from uh, human ag- agricultural activity, what does it mean uh, now that we have all these industrial emissions of, of greenhouse gases in much larger proportions than our, our farming ancestors uh, emitted these gases? There is a fundamental difference between the early warming that I claim to have detected and the present-day industrial era warming. The early warming came on very slowly, but it also did not carry the greenhouse gas concentrations or the climate beyond the natural bounds that it had been varying at over the last several hundred thousand years. That's not the case for the current warming. The greenhouse gas concentrations are now well outside, well above their natural the, the natural range that they have been varying at. And the global temperature is just at the point of exceeding the natural range of, of uh, temperature as well. So we're heading into uh, terra incognita. We are right now at the, the warm limit of how warm the Earth has been in the last several hundred thousand years, and we're heading fairly quickly towards something a good deal warmer. Professor William Rudiman is author of the article, Did Humans Stop an Ice Age? in the March issue of the Scientific American. Thanks for taking this time with me today, Bill. It's good talking to you, Steve. Last year, the disaster film The Day After Tomorrow was a notable attempt by Hollywood to draw wider attention to the issue of climate change. Another effort by the art world to document the warming planet is underway in San Francisco, where one of the city's most respected dance companies is tackling the almost impossibly unglamorous subject. Producer Todd Spencer sat in on a rehearsal of ODC dances on a train heading south and has our story. Take it slow going back to that place and let her grab you and pull you back to that place. ODC founder Brenda Way has choreographed 70 pieces over the last 30 years, but never one like this. Like me, you might wonder what a dance about, essentially, weather would look like. You might also question the topic's value as good dance fare. But if the feedback from advanced audiences is any indication, the 30-minute dance packs an emotional wallop. The piece is the brainchild of Way and composer-collaborator Jack Perla, who pitched the idea to Brenda after a vacation to Antarctica. He proposed this idea. I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I thought it was so massive. And I still get that. Uh, you know, like if I describe the piece to colleagues at work, um, can you really do that? I mean, a, a dance piece about global warming, it's pretentious. As it opens... We see the dancers as a picture of society engaged in what could be a fancy black tie party. An awkward female guest soon arrives. Cassandra's sort of the party crasher, and she's the, you know, she's the downer, and she's not very good conversationalist, and she's not very effervescent. In Greek mythology, Cassandra could see into the future, but stripped of her powers of persuasion by Apollo, she's unable to convince the Greek generals about the danger posed by the Trojan horse. Throughout this piece, the lone Cassandra figure tries to alarm her fellow dancers about the strange weather. And as the evening wears on, the tension gets greater and greater. It starts innocent. It really becomes quite violent. Jack describes the arc of the story this way. Sky is falling, sky is falling. Ah, shut up, ah, shut up, ah, shut up. And then the sky falls. 
That's the arc of the story. Require all power plants to make clean air standards. The piece is scored by Jack, who peppers his original music with snippets of media clips from politicians and samples of MTV-style hip-hop, and even a parody on a Britney Spears song, not coincidentally, named Toxic. But it's when the choreography and the music are combined with a third element, the stage set, that a new emotional understanding of global warming is created with viewers. Hanging above the stage, suggesting a glacial world, are 12 giant blocks of ice. The pieces of ice are shaped in an arc, so they sort of remind you of being at one of the poles or being at the top of the world or the bottom of the world. But at the same time, they look like big ice cubes, you know, and they almost look like they should be draining into a martini glass. With the ice cast iridescent and hot stage lights, the dancer's world literally melts around them. Yuki Fujimoto is a dancer. It was so beautiful until, of course, we started slipping. <laughs> and then we, um, we ran a, the piece a couple of times. Um, people fell, and um, I think Brenda was horrified. She might have been horrified, but Brenda fell in love with the set and its emotional impact. For me, the idea of a big chunk of ice melting on the stage and a group of brilliant dancers with gorgeous bodies ignoring it seemed to me such a perfect metaphor for our social non-response to the condition that that's really all I was thinking about. In a moment that elicited audible gasps from a preview audience, the dancers form an elegant human glacier that sinks and contracts in jerky tremors, personifying our intrinsic connection to the fate of the ice caps. I was reading all of these descriptions of what was happening to the glaciers and so on, and I felt there was a profound analogy between what was happening to the glaciers and what's happening to our social order. The collapse of both. One is actually collapsing because of the other. Toward the dance's conclusion, there's a battle between Cassandra and a solo male dancer where she's physically dominated, partially smothered, and left in emotional shambles. Then, as she predicted, the worst happens. The final scene is a flood scenario. Upstage, a shattered Cassandra sits, making circles in the water with her finger as two male dancers come to terms with the devastation behind her. One props the other up in consolation and wills him to continue on, to adjust to the new reality. What the dance form can do is touch a place emotionally that you didn't even know you were sensitive to. And I hope we do that. For Living on Earth, I'm Todd Spencer. ODC dance founder Brenda Ways on a train heading south just opened in San Francisco and will tour nationwide this autumn. Just ahead, aw shucks, turns out oysters may be key to restoring San Francisco Bay. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. The average person in the U.S. generates almost a ton of waste per year, and most of it winds up in landfills. As this waste decomposes, it produces a blend called landfill gas, or LFG, which is composed of 50% methane and 50% carbon dioxide. LFG can be extracted and processed into fuel to power vehicles and turbines or heat and cool buildings. But when air enters the landfill, it raises the cost of LFG purification, since separating nitrogen and 
oxygen is expensive. So British scientist Victor Popov has come up with a design that virtually eliminates air from entering a landfill in the first place. Popov's solution is to cover the landfill with a multi-layer membrane that includes a middle permeable layer sandwiched between two low permeable layers. In the middle layer, carbon dioxide prevents air from entering the landfill and LFG from escaping, allowing for efficient and cost-effective purification of LFG. In 2003, more than six million metric tons of methane was captured from landfills in the U.S., half of which was used for energy production. Popov's new design will allow the U.S. to increase its use of methane while decreasing its emissions of global warming greenhouse gases. So maybe some of that garbage you're throwing away isn't such a waste after all. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Argosy Foundation Contemporary Music Fund, supporting the creation, performance, and recording of new music. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the W. K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and coming up, the powers of observation made keen by a life behind bars. But first, San Francisco Bay is one of the world's most popular places, but that popularity has come with a cost. Gold mining runoff, dredging, and development have killed many native species that once thrived in the bay. Now, an ambitious plan is underway to restore it to its natural state, and one critical step is to bring back a tiny native shellfish. Andrea Kissick has more. The lunch crowd at Hog Island Oyster Company on the famous San Francisco Wharf slurps down oysters just as fast as the waiters can chuck them. But these oysters didn't come from the bay; just a few feet away, they were hauled down from another body of water 60 miles north, Tamales Bay. There was a time when you could eat native oysters right out of San Francisco Bay. For generations, the mollusks fed the coast Miwok and Ohlone Indians. In the late 1800s, it was the gold miners' voracious appetite for the native Olympic oyster that made the Bay Area the capital of the West Coast oyster industry. Jack London even memorialized the abundant oyster in his short stories. But by the time of London's death in 1916, San Francisco oysters were mostly gone, choked off by the city's raw sewage, or overfished. The oysters that survived were imported from Seattle, or hauled by train from the East Coast and dumped on top of the old San Francisco oyster beds. But by the 1940s, even the non-native oysters couldn't survive in San Francisco's increasingly polluted bay. Well, the last time I tried this, I sank to about my knees walking through this mud. In the shallow waters off Tiburon, in the northern part of the bay, marine biologist Mike McGowan sloshes through four feet of quicksand-like sludge, washed down from upstream. This mud, which is a legacy of the hydraulic mining, gold mining in the Sierras, is still here in the bay. McGowan is trying to find one of his oyster beds, 
Last spring, volunteers helped him sink clusters of empty oyster shells off the shore in hopes they would become homes for baby oysters. A larger-scale effort is succeeding in Chesapeake Bay. But while that experiment aims to revive the eastern oyster industry, McGowan hopes to save San Francisco Bay, and bringing back the oyster may be the key. Everything is interrelated. You know, the oysters help the eelgrass. The eelgrass helps the oysters. Having more oysters and eelgrass means that there's more habitat and shelter for fish. When the whole bay ecology improves, crabs, starfish, and birds benefit too. Oysters are also the lungs of the bay. Just one can filter more than 15 gallons of water a day, enough to nearly fill a bathtub. So more oysters mean cleaner water and more life in the bay. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do is just walk out to that oyster reef. Turn it up. It's low tide on a sunny Thursday morning, and McGowan is slogging through the mudflats to reach one of several white buoys. This one is floating about 40 feet offshore. Anchored to the buoy is a sunken wooden pallet with about a dozen nylon mesh bags stacked and tied together. The bags are full of oyster shells. When they are very young, oysters are searching for something hard to cement themselves. They will recruit onto just about anything, uh, wood, old battery cases, shopping carts, but they greatly prefer other oyster shell because a good place to land for a young oyster is where adult oysters have already managed to grow up and survive. When they find a home, oysters stick to it for life. They are much more adventuresome when it comes to their sex lives. Oysters are hermaphrodites, beginning life as males, but changing to females to spawn hundreds of thousands of larvae. And back and forth they go, spending the rest of their lives switching genders. Meanwhile, the pinhead-sized oyster larvae are carried by the currents of the bay. And McGowan is, well, hoping to catch their drift. While some of his early tries failed, today he finds what he's looking for. Okay, now here's an oyster. This is really great. I've looked at um, three shells. And, Brooke, how many have you looked at? Four. Four. Okay, so seven shells. On the eighth shell, we found a large native oyster. Oh, there's another one. McGowan searches 100 shells and finds 23 baby oysters. With the help of volunteers from the Tiburon Audubon Center, he carries them to shore and measures each one. 2.5 centimeters. At two months old, these oysters are just beginning to grow their own shells inside the ones they found. It's the way they've been doing it for millennia. This is one of several projects funded by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. McGowan, the Tiburon Audubon Center, and local conservation groups are counting on the resilience of nature to bring back the oysters. One way to look at it is that each isolated small population of oysters is like a little light bulb. When the larvae from one population find a good place and settle, that's like a light bulb turning on. But then one of these light bulbs is turning off someplace else. So what we'd like to do is have enough light bulbs blinking on and off around the bay that it's a continuous glow. And the, the oyster population, you know, makes a comeback and does it on its own. McGowan is hoping that happens in his lifetime. And if the bay's native oyster does return, we may find that sometimes we can reverse some of the damage we've caused. For Living on Earth, I'm Andrea Kissick in San Francisco.
Ken Lamberton spent much of his early career teaching others about the Arizona desert. As a biology instructor and YMCA camp counselor, he led students through caves, canyons, and desert plateaus, always on the lookout for rare animals and artifacts. But at the age of 27, he had to give it all up. Ken Lamberton is now a published nature writer, but it wasn't the open desert where he honed his craft. It was in prison. Mr. Lamberton served 12 years for child molestation, and while incarcerated, he wrote a collection of nature writings, now published, called Beyond Desert Walls, Essays from Prison. Many of them are attempts to make peace with his family and his crime that began with an obsession with a 14-year-old girl who worked at a summer camp. You think of most camps as being in the pines with lakes and rivers and, and canoeing. Um, this is a, a desert camp, and it's uh, centered mostly around horseback riding and, and some other desert-type activities, camp craft skills, hiking. Um, it's it's not low desert as we have here in Tucson. It's a little bit higher um, grassland desert. And so it's about 10 degrees cooler than Tucson would normally be in the summertime. So there's outdoor activities don't become an issue because of the heat. And at this camp, uh, you met your wife. What was that, that summer that you, that you first met your wife? What was that like? Well, that was my second summer working at this camp. And uh, camp is it's a whole different thing. Um, your inhibitions are, are, well, there aren't any, I guess. It's a very magical place. And uh, when, when Karen walked into my life, I noticed her immediately, and I knew I wanted to be with her. And we hit it off right away. She was in the, um, helping direct the same program that I was working in. And camp is just one of those places where everything is just um, laid bare, I mean, you you do your laundry together, and so our relationship developed, and we spent uh, many, many nights, sleepless nights, under the stars. Unfortunately, you know, where this leads is when my victim arrived, I began repeating the same thing, and so I've I've destroyed a lot of precious memories that my wife had by bringing somebody else into the situation, into our camp. What happened? Uh, the girl whom you, you victimized uh, sexually, she comes to camp, what, the summer of 1986? Right. And you're, what, about to be a father? Your wife right. is working? My wife is pregnant with our third child. We have two small um, girls, and we're all there. We we moved to the camp um, after the school year. So there was already a, a relationship that was developing, and, uh, and it just took off um, when she came to camp. Um, so, you know, the relationship grew into this obsession, and I saw no way out of it except running away with her. And that's what we did. Before the camp season ended in August, we decided to run away together. It lasted two weeks. And she was how old, and you were how old? She was 14. I was 26, 27. What do you tell people in those circumstances? What? How do you explain your feelings about what happened in the past? Well, I, people ask me all the time, you know, what were you thinking? And and the best answer I can give them is that I just wasn't. I was fueled on my emotions and my brain, my mind was not engaged at all. So I'm not trying to absolve myself of any responsibility. I feel completely responsible for my actions during that time. And I regret it deeply. I mean, the damage that it did to my victim, to my family, to my children, it's a baggage I'll carry the rest of my life that I'll never escape. And, you know, truthfully, I'll probably define myself as a prisoner for the rest of my life. 
Now, as someone who was convicted as a sex offender, I understand that there's a certain hierarchy among inmates and that oh, yeah. you even write that sex offenders are at the very bottom of that ladder. But They are. During your time in prison, you were recruited to teach science and nature to your fellow inmates. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you think this made you fit in within the prison community uh, with the label of sex offender yourself? Well, first of all, I was in a a facility that was largely um, sex offenders, probably 60%. You know, but there were others that were not, and sometimes there would be trouble with them, but not very often. But um, I think because I decided to teach in uh, education to share my knowledge and and my skills, um, that I was respected by these men, and in this case, um, helping them gain their GEDs. What sort of lessons did you offer them? Well, I had this enormous science background, so the first thing I did was develop a, a science program that involved a lot of activities. The, the yard we were, that we were on was what they call an open yard, which means that the inmates can travel from their cells to and from classes and, and the uh, dining facilities. And so I, I tried to develop activities where um, it would take us kind of outside the classroom, and I used what resources I had, insects that I'd find on the yard, or a, a bat you know, that would cling to the roof from the night before I'd catch in, in like a jar that so we could examine it, you know, look at the structure of its wing and then take it outside and release it. Um, I developed some astronomy programs because we did have some evening classes. And, and one of the things that uh, that I was really connected to in prison was seeing stars. Um, I was glad for that, seeing the sky, seeing the stars at night, seeing Orion in the wintertime swing overhead. In any sense, did being in prison give you an advantage as a nature writer? Yeah, it really um, forced me to focus. I think it's Kathleen Norris. She knows something about the cloistered life. She wrote a book about it. She talks about the um, um, being forced inward by the spareness that is outward. And that's what it did for me. It, it, it really taught me to um, pay attention to details. There's not much in that environment and so you become attuned to everything that moves, every little trespass um, that comes through the fences, through the razor wire, even if it's um, an insect or a bird or a weed that comes up through the cracks in a, a section of concrete. And and you rejoice in those. I mean, it's it's nature. I found a wilderness inside of prison, and it was right there before my eyes. So this is a long time you're there, um, what, 12 years? 12 years, yeah. What was it like returning to your family? You had now, unlike probably most prisoners, you had this group of people that were very anxiously awaiting your return. Yeah, well, most wives, most families of inmates are gone within the first two years. Uh, Mine stayed with me for 12, and so I had a place to go. I had that family support. My uh, my wife said um, a few months before I went to prison that uh, my children would always be my children. There was nothing I could do to escape that, and that she would always be my wife. And uh, boy, talk about a confrontation! You know, all I wanted was out. Um, I was still, you know, during those um, that foggy time between the, my arrest and when I actually went to prison. You know, I was still um, wanting to continue the relationship. And my wife was really in my face about it. And it was the uh, the birth of my daughter, Melissa, where I, I finally made a decision that I was wrong and that I needed to come back to my family. And uh, without without violating her privacy, what what's happened to your victim? 
Did your victim testify at the trial? Yes. By this time, she had um, realized, I guess, pretty much what I did, that I had made a horrible mistake, and she thought I should go to prison. And uh, I I know she went on with her life. She went to a school, graduated, uh, I believe, at the law school here at the University of Arizona, and uh, is practicing law somewhere now. Now, have you gone back to your camp, the summer camp, uh, since you've been released? Actually, I haven't. I've been to the area. I've been to the the caves that um, that we explored and the mines. I've been to the area all surrounding it. I've looked down on the camp from uh, from a, a mountain ridge above it, but I've never um, actually stepped foot back in the camp. And uh, and either has my wife. She spent some time there after my arrest, kind of finishing up things because she was very involved with the camp also. But she says my wife um, feels probably the same way I do. She says there are or ghosts there that she continually bumps into. And she has real no desire to go back. So why don't you move farther away from the the area here? Uh, Why do you keep all this so close to you? (laughs) Yeah, well, my wife talks about it all the time. Uh, She'd like to move away. I think it's this need to kind of start over. But, um, you know, the, the thing is, is that our friends, our church our family, they're all here, and they know, and there's a kind of, they know about me and the crime and the long incarceration, what my family went through, and there's um, there's some comfort and, and security in that. Um, and really, I, I believe that there there isn't so much any um, starting over. Um, what my wife really has given me is, is not a chance to start over, but um, the promise of continuing and so that's what we're doing. We're just we're continuing with our lives in this place, you know, um, carrying everything with us, that uh, carrying our past with us, the scars with us. Ken Lamberton is author of Beyond Desert Walls: Essays from Prison. Ken, thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. take you now to the desert, where it's not that unusual to find things lying around abandoned, things in the middle of nowhere that leave you wondering how they got there in the first place. Like an old chest in a reclining chair that Scott Smallwood found squeaking and rattling in a heavy wind blowing through the Great Salt Lake Desert in Utah. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Jennifer Chu, Steve Gregory, and Ingrid Lobet, with help from Christopher Bolick and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Katie Oliveri and Katie Zemsev. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and cultured soy. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Wellborn Ecology Fund. This is NPR, National Public Radio.